Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we're tackling a very immodest question. We're talking about one of the most profound philosophical questions and that is what gives life meaning? And uh, my thinking about this is that it's around Christmas time, it's coming up to Christmas, right? And sometimes people can be a little bit miserable, particularly if they're not able to see their family or they don't have a family to see. And so I wanted to do something that will lift your spirits and talk about all of the ways in which life can be meaningful. But you don't have to be miserable because it's always useful to know this. No one, um, you know, is, is completely perfect on this matter, myself included. So, you know, this is just my best guess. I'm not here to say this is the meaning of your life. I'm just going to talk about how I approach the question as well as all of the differing perspectives on it. And my view is that as long as you can perceive some sort of meaning, as long as you, you're getting some meaning from something, there's probably aspects of it that are, are good, undeniably good. And I'm not here to question that. It's not to say, oh, you're wrong to get meaning from this unless you're, no, you know, you're like a serial killer, in which case you are wrong. Um, <laughs> but that's more sort of ethical concerns. But we're not going to be talking about the ethics side of stuff because it's not really going to come in. I think it is kind of a given that people don't want to derive meaning from doing unethical things. And so that's one of the presumptions I'm going to approach this with. And um, I'm also going to be talking about um, sort of think aspects and attitudes towards mortality and death, because I think if you want to create meaning, if you want to understand the light, you have to understand the dark, but it's not necessarily going to be depressing because I think I have quite an optimistic view on it. And this is a rare occasion where I'm actually going to be optimistic. So, you know, mark it down in the calendar, um, pinch yourself because it's happening. I'm saying something positive, which uh, is a, a low seat at first, really. But um, I'm very pleased to be joined by Stelios. Hello. Thank you for sitting through that very long introduction, but I thought I'd be clear enough no, about what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Thank you. So, it's good to hear that you're going to be optimistic. I know, yeah, well, yeah. it'd be a, a bit depressing if just before Christmas I'm just like, let's talk about the meaning of life. So there's no meaning. The end. Very short contemplations. No. Um, I suppose we may as well talk about some of the dangers of an absence of meaning because these are all relatively obvious, but I think it's always good um, to make things salient in your mind, to have them easily conjured up because... I think people quite often don't approach philosophical questions in this way. They go straight into the point of contention rather than almost warming up their mind. That's how I kind of think of it. You've got to kind of flesh out all of the concepts, even if they're sort of familiar things. And that helps you see how everything um, comes together, I suppose, in a more orderly way. And I, I like that. So... Sorry if it seems a little bit condescending because it's, it's fairly obvious, but it serves an important purpose because even if you understand these concepts fully, which, you know, is still impossible, but, you know, even if you feel confident with them, it's good to bring them to mind. So if someone lacks meaning in their life, um, which quite often is a gradual process, um, to my understanding, I don't know whether you agree, but yes. I think meaning slowly gets eroded over time. Because when you're a child, you're not necessarily contemplating the meaning of life. You, you just live, you accept it, don't you? And I think it's only when people become more self-aware um, as adults that these sorts of questions become pertinent. 
And sometimes you can feel confident in adulthood and slowly over time as your circumstances change or nothing changes, everything stays the same, it can be both sides really, then it can lead to this gradual um, erasure of meaning in your life without really noticing. It's, it's like a lot of things in the realm of human psychology that um, things change gradually behind the scenes and you don't really notice it. It's kind of like ageing. You don't necessarily notice your ageing because it happens gradually. And then all of a sudden you look at a picture of yourself from a long time ago and you're like, wow, I looked like that, didn't I? I don't look like that anymore. I think that it's important to draw some distinctions, mm -hmm. especially when we're talking about a psychological condition. So we are talking about, for instance, people who have meaning in their lives, mm -hmm. people who don't have meaning and they lack, which is our first section, as you're saying, and people who are searching for meaning. I think that we can have, we can safely say that these are three major categories. Sure, but I think um, people who are searching for meaning, that's never mutually exclusive, exclusive of either of the other categories, because yeah. I think that's the default for all, all of humanity, really. Yes, I think so. And there are specific pros and cons with each, let's say, category. Because, for instance, you could say that when, or at least, no, I, th I think generally speaking, finding no meaning is negative. <laughs> it's mostly a negative. How did you come to that conclusion? But I want to say also that one of the reasons why it is negative is because, first of all, it's bad for the person. Mm -hmm. But second, it creates a gap that will be filled at some point. So at some point, people who do lack meaning will try and fill that gap. And the question is, what are they going to fill it with? It doesn't even need to be conscious either in that yes. just by living your life, these things happen yes. sort of behind the scenes, if you will. But I wanted to um, quickly run through some of the deficits before you go into the, the, the more detail-oriented stuff. And um, just to sort of hammer home the the negatives of having an absence of meaning, I suppose, it makes you feel depressed, makes you feel hopeless about the future, makes you lack motivation, so you can't achieve your goals, makes you feel isolated and lonely, um, it makes you pursue short-term, perhaps more hedonistic pleasures. I know that term conjures up debauchery and things like that, but that's not necessarily what it means. I mean, someone could just eat lots of fast food or something like that, rather than eating more healthily. Um, I'm not one to judge there, but um, it's thinking about the short term over the long term, basically. Um, and also, it reduces your resilience to adversity. I think those are the main things that I've kind of come up with. I'm sure there's probably some other stuff as well. But those are the things that I wanted to bring to mind. And um, does that, that sound reasonable to you? Is there I anything so. I've missed? And I think that uh, what you mentioned about debauchery and... Um the, the speed at which people try to become hedonists or the speed in which hedonism just emerges in a person who, generally speaking, lacks meaning is a form of search for meaning. Mm -hmm. But the issue is that it may not be good for the long run. So, for yeah. instance, this is a kind of, you could say, way in which, you know, there is... There's a chance that you can get instant gratification. You can find meaning in a royale with cheese, for instance, <laughs> okay, or a Big Mac or something. 
but that is not going to last. So that's one of the one of the extra negative effects of not having meaning is that this is not something that if you remain alive can be sustained. So there is a chance that meaning will be somehow found. And the question is, is it good or bad? Because ultimately, meaning is about value. That's why we're calling people who don't have, who don't think their life has meaning, nihilists. Mm -hmm. The question is that actual nihilists will either leave, vacate the premises, or they will be unconsciously uh, people who think that there is a kind of meaning. And the question is, how, how likely is it that someone who remains alive, whatever they say consciously, finds no meaning? What's the likelihood of that? I think because a lot of the times what we say about our evaluations and what we actually feel is meaningful are different. I think actually it's very, very, it's basically impossible to be a, a nihilist yeah. because if, if, you, if you believe that you're a nihilist, then you believe in something. And, and so it, it, it becomes an impossible position because you are a, a sentient being in this world. You have to have beliefs by necessity and it's very difficult to reach that point and people may self-identify with nihilism. I think there's also a certain amount of comfort in giving up and despairing. There's a sort of uh, comfort in the darkness of it, if you will. Yeah. I'm not sure how to articulate it. I, um, I can think of people who are in love with their misery, let's mm -hmm. say. Yeah. It's a way of, of creating a comfort zone that they feel comfortable in. I, I'm, I'm reminded of um, the, the lyrics of, of Kurt Cobain by, um, you know, the, the lead vocalist in Nirvana. It, one of those lyrics is, I miss the comfort of being insane. You know, there's a certain, um, I suppose there's some poetry in, in misery. There's, I think um, there's, I think, Melancholy. Kind of tragic mm. value or something. Yeah, I think as well that melancholy as well. There's, there, I think there's a, quite a poetic emotion, if you will. And, and so I think having a complete understanding of, of your own emotions is good. And not necessarily thinking that feeling negative is the end of the world. Because it's, I would, I would just my own personal opinion, I would much rather sort of run the, the, the sort of cycle of feeling both positive and negative than not feel anything at all. I think that's the, not feeling anything is far, far worse than feeling something, even if it is negative, because you know, at least you feel alive. Yeah. And uh, I suppose that's a positive to, to draw out of a negative all on its own. It may not feel that way at the time, but I think that this sort of um, emotional purgatory where nothing changes and you're sort of trapped in stasis, that's far more horrifying to me than than the potential of feeling bad because I've always had the philosophy of um, that the bad times make the good times better in that you've got a frame of reference. If, if every single thing you did was good, then all of a sudden all these good things become devalued because that's the only experiences you have. You have to have a bit of good and bad.
I think this is definitely true after we become adults and after mm -hmm. we lose our innocence in a sense because you can say that children are in a sort of golden age of meaning everything is meaningful to them yeah but and afterwards when innocence is lost and we grow up into the world and we see things around us we begin to question and i think definitely then we do see things in a sort of duality there's a sort good of and evil yin and yin and yang that you can't have one without the other yes i think that that's you, you can't have happiness without sadness you can't have darkness without light that sort of um, dichotomy where the absence creates the um, the existence if you will which is it sounds like a misreading of um, you some... can say that i mean when we are conscious of things we are a lot of, a lot of the time conscious of of distinctions mm. So when it's one thing to be on automatic pilot like we are when we're kids and we find everything meaningful, but then in a sense we have to work for a meaning, not only epistemically in terms of how we think, but also in other ways, practically speaking. Mm. But when it comes to thinking, when a lot of the time we understand things only in contrasts. And that happens with a lot of concepts. I think with every concept. Well, I think when we think of sort of a sliding scale of, of something, be it, you know, politics or meaning, we look at, we identify the two extremes yes. to figure out what's in the middle. Yep. Because what's in the middle is more of a grey area than the, the poles. And so that's how we conceptualise of it a lot of the time. And, and so that the temptation is, because we're thinking about it in either, oh, I've got lots of meaning or I've got none at all, um, quite often you're more likely to be in the middle somewhere rather than at one of these extremes but just by the merit of dichotomizing them in that way it makes us um, it gives us a tendency to evaluate things more towards the extremes more towards the poles than you might otherwise it'd be interesting actually to look at um, some research I'm not um, I've not seen any looking at this but I suppose you'd have to <laughs> find an objective measure of people's meaning which would be difficult because it's a, a subjective thing so I imagine that's probably why there hasn't been but if there were an experiment designed this is purely hypothetical I would imagine that people would report more extremes towards the poles than they would actually be in reality this is my kind of intuition I, I have a view that may be a bit uh, may sound a bit weird but I think that if there was a test in, a, in laboratory conditions in a way, okay, that's obviously in a, in a broader sense. I think that most reports of what people felt would be, would be mistaken. In a way, I think there is a test and it's life itself. And uh, you, you can see what people do as opposed to what they say. Mm -hmm. And I think the overwhelming majority of people do feel that life is meaningful. They wouldn't be here if they didn't. And the, but the tragedy is that a lot of the time, the meaning we pursue doesn't have the place in the world that we would have it if we were the grand architect of the, of the universe. So in a sense, having meaning on the one hand and pursuing it are different because you could say that, for instance, I, I find value in artistic creation even if you haven't created something or if you haven't achieved st um, recognition as an artist, 
You could say, for instance, that you find music to give your life meaning or one of the main pillars of value for your life and you want to be a musician. So the search for having meaning, you can have meanings and search for meaning simultaneously. If on the second, in the latter case, you're trying to become the artist that you want to become. Mm -hmm. In a sense, you have something that makes you tick, but it makes you tick and you keep going forward and you struggle for it. Or say you want to go to art school and become a painter and then you channel that, that yeah. failed artist energy into politics and then you become a maniac. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's my, my innate disposition to um, deconstruct meaning and, okay. and destroy it because I'm uh, a miscreant at heart. But no, I, I, I entirely There's agree. There's an interesting with what you're philosophical uh, tangent there, but we may address it towards the end because <laughs> I think. It has to do with excessive skepticism. That, that was doing it on purpose, by the yeah. way. I'm not, not being serious. But no, I, I agree with what you're saying there. And um, I've got an interesting, uh, sort of interesting in my opinion anyway, um, approach to making people think about this. Because I, I've, I've spoke to people who've basically communicated, I don't find that much meaning in my life or things like that. And... This is sort of my cold, sharp shock to make them stop thinking about it. It's a little bit silly because I'm basically applying economic principles to the concept of life and death. Oh, let's hear it. <laughs> which, which sounds ridiculous, but basically it's based on the premise that that which is um, infinite in its abundance does not have value. Because if, if it's infinite, then there's, there's always enough supply to meet demand. And therefore, it doesn't have much value because, you know, value is the, the point between supply and demand. And um, if you apply this to human life, human life is obviously not infinite. There is a limited supply. There's certainly a demand for more. Most people do not want to die. Um, that is a sort of revealed preference by the fact that, sure, some people do commit suicide. Um, and that is obviously tragic, but the vast majority of people um, live for as long as they can. And so there's a sort of revealed preference for living. And so because there is this um, subjective preference for living, it's fair to say that life has value. Um, and when you work for it logically, even though everything I said is entirely obvious and you'd be like, Josh, what are you, why are you saying this? This is... You're talking to us like you're, we're idiots, we're not idiots. Um, but I think it's important to highlight this sort of thing because if someone's miserable and you just point it out and it, it's such a, an obvious and logical way of approaching it, that it is a good way of giving someone a, a kick up the arse basically to say, hey, listen, you're lucky. People want to live longer, you know, make the most of it. And I think if you supplement this with giving them a sense of how fortunate they are to, to be having the, the experience of being alive at all, then it's quite a powerful thing because I like to think of things in, in the sense of, well, I'm incredibly fortunate to be born in you know, the UK at this period of time where you know, I don't really have that much suffering in, in, in my life. You know, I'm not going to die if I get uh, a bad tooth. If I, you know, get food poisoning, it's not going to kill me. Um, 
things are, are a lot better than they, they were in that respect. I'm not necessarily going to unduly suffer because I think one of the things I do fear is unnecessary suffering or just extended amounts of pain. And I think that's a reasonable thing to fear. I think anyone who says that they don't fear that probably just trying to make themselves look tough. But yeah. I think by being a, a, a living thing in this world, you have to be averse to that sort of stuff. Um, the, the I think that goes without saying, but you know. I'm, it has yeah. to be said because yeah. you get people like um, Jocko Willink and, and people like that who's just like, suffering is good and yeah, you need yeah, to whatever. suffer. Oh, pain is how you know you're alive. And it's like, well, actually, there are lots of other things that show me that I'm alive. I don't necessarily need to be, um, you know, writhing around on the floor in agony to feel that's, that I'm alive. That's another symptom of how good conditions we are living in mm -hmm. in the Western world because when people mean so it is important to see how the concept of suffering is understood differently. It certainly has changed. Yeah, hasn't and it? this is what I've also said in other conversations, for instance, with uh, the debate on liberalism we had, that suffering is not just you know being ditched or it's, the suffering I have in mind is you know the suffering you see when you read history. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I have a historic view not, on it as well. Like, yeah, not like saying, okay, the, the, they messed up my order, my life sucks. That's not suffering. Mm -hmm. I think people meet, when they say it, they mean sort of emotional hardship or yeah. physical adversity in the, in the sense of, you yeah. know, you're exercising. That's the, what people mean about it in the modern day. I mean, having those experiences does have value because it makes you sort of more resilient to coming across similar things in the future. Yeah. Um, so I'm not necessarily diminishing it, I'm not saying it's worthless. But um, another thing that I think is important to bear in mind is, you know, we're, we live in a universe where we've not really found life anywhere other than on Earth. You know, the, the, the probability that there is life on Earth is um, pretty minuscule when looking at it from a cosmic perspective. The probability that you're born at all um, is tiny. So there's, it's like a, a statistical miracle that you can have this experience of, of watching this video right now even. Um, and so I think that looking at it from that perspective is, is always quite rewarding because then it makes you incredibly grateful to have the opportunity in the first place. It's something like the the probability that you're alive is equivalent to the, the same probability of winning the lottery a hundred times in a row or something like it's it's unfathomable more yeah. or less uh, you know i i haven't worked out the exact maths but it's in, in such a large order of magnitude that it's even, even if you could quantify it you wouldn't know how to make heads or tails of the number necessarily but i think that's always something worth reassuring people because then they realize wow i'm i'm really lucky you know look at the, you know the maths doesn't lie the, the the chance of me being here at all you know it's uh, i think it was um <laughs> was it ricky gervais in one of one of his stand-up specials where he says um think of how lucky you are that you you know beat all the other sperm you know all of the other potential variants of someone like you could have existed and you won so that's something and uh, what was it? His, his, his joke was, and uh, for some people, that's the last thing that they won. Um, 
I think that's in a sense not robust enough to make someone understand meaning. Of course not. Because but it's a start, isn't it? It's it a is. way. Yeah. It's, it's a way of saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, things aren't completely meaningless. Yeah. I think basically, if someone there's a slogan that is a bit cheesy, but I think it's it's uh, nice. It says, "If you feel, you can heal." <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's like true, mo- yeah. motivational speaking. It's also but, true um, if um, if you're a victim of burns, um, if you get severely burned, if you get third degree burns and you can't feel anything, um, then it, it won't heal. But if you can feel the pain of a, a burn, then you can heal. So there you go. It's true of both emotions and physical injuries. That's my pedantic point of the day. Yeah. No, but what, what I wanted to say that in a way, searching for meaning consciously speaking, because the unconscious is a different beast, is a form of finding meaning already. Because if you want there to, if you think that you should find value, you already believe that you have a kind of worth. Mm. So I think that's a start. It is, yeah. So that is the issue that when someone says that, there's a difference between saying on the one hand, I don't find meaning, I don't care at all. And, and on the other hand saying, I'm worried that I don't find meaning and I want there to be meaning and I'm looking for it. Because in the second case, you do think that there is a kind of value to you and you, you have a kind of worth and you want that kind of worth to have a place in the world that you think it doesn't have right now. And a lot of the times, when we are using some notions, we need, we need to be a bit more critical with how we approach them. Because, for instance, it's one thing to say life has meaning and human life has worth. And that when we're talking in ethical contexts, for instance, when we're trying to establish criteria of right and wrong and how to act to each other and you know what to do. And quite another to see that when we're talking about goodness, for instance, it's always... There has to be a clause for me, for you, for them, for that person. So if we're saying that life is good, there's always the question, for whom? So a lot of the time someone can say that I understand that on an ethical basis, human life has value, but my life does not seem to be good for me. It seems to be overall bad for me. So it seems to me that the kind of discussion we're having concerns more the latter. Yeah, and I think that that my approach to that question, I I do agree with how you've set it up, the sort of premise here, is that it's a subjective assessment of worth and that actually if you get people to just rethink or perhaps just consider other things, maybe they won't be so fatalistic about themselves, right? And wanting to find meaning... I think it's very important because in a way it shows a kind of value not giving up. You haven't given up on the possibility that there may be meaning or that you haven't given up on the possibility that the values that you have will find a place to the, in the world mm-hmm. that will make your life better. So I suppose in the spirit of talking about a sort of point to build on, on further... I wanted to briefly touch on the concept of death denial and general mortality because this 
sort of ties into uh, my notion that to understand the light, to understand meaning, you've got to understand dark and I suppose the absence of, of meaning, which to my mind is uh, when you're not alive. And yeah. I think that the concept of death denial in particular is a very interesting one and it's one that I sort of came to my own conclusions about before I realised that it was a formalised concept. Um, this is true of a lot of aspects of philosophy, you've probably found the same with other things where you've had ideas and then you've looked it up and it's like, oh someone beat me to it, great. Um, this happens a lot. Um, but basically the, the idea was formalised in 1973 um, in a book by an American cultural anthropologist called Ernest Becker. Um, in the book was called The Denial of Death. Um, and he wrote this book on his deathbed while um, after being diagnosed with colon cancer. So I think he was someone who was well acquainted with his own creeping mortality. Um, and I've got a direct quote from him here where he says, In the denial of death, I argued that man's innate and all-encompassing fear of death drives him to attempt to transcend death through culturally standardised hero systems and symbols. And he also um, argued that a lot of the bad things that are done in the world are done by a compulsion to deny death. And basically this death denial thing is that um, although we're, if someone asks, are you going to die someday, everyone says, of course, yeah, obviously. But people don't necessarily think about it in, in a way in which might be useful to them. They, yes. they also avoid the thought because it's unpleasant and you know, you're not unreasonable to find it unpleasant. I don't like thinking about my own mortality um, particularly, but I just understand its importance. I think um, this kind of ties into a general philosophy of mind that I have that um, if you're doing things that are good for you, it's a bit like going to the gym, um, sort of introspecting and addressing your own personal psychology. If you're not inflicting some amount of pain on yourself, in a, not in a, a sort of masochistic way, but in a, um, I'm addressing difficult things for my own personal benefit, sort of goal-driven um, discomfort, then you're not going to get too far. You know, things happen gradually behind the scenes, but you need to address these difficult topics because if you keep on putting it off or um, hoping that someone else will give you answers or sort of sliding it under the rug and pretending it doesn't exist, then it's going to cause you discomfort. You've got to face your problems head on. And that's how I try and live my life. Although, you know, being a human being, you know, you're never necessarily perfectly adhering to your own principles. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.